From the garden level of Harvard Medical School's historic Vanderbilt Hall in Boston, this is Think Research, a podcast that discusses the stories behind medical research. I'm Abby, your host. Think Research is brought to you by Harvard Catalyst, Harvard University's Clinical and Translational Science Center. Computed tomography, or CT, is the standard of care for stroke patients, necessary for assessing whether the cause is a blood clot or bleeding in the brain. This imaging is vital in determining the proper treatment in order to save a patient's life. However, CT scanners are not always available where they're needed most. Dr. Raj Gupta hopes to change this. His lab is working to develop a CT machine that can be loaded into the back of an ambulance, a Humvee, or even sent into space. Raj Gupta is an associate radiologist in the Neural and Emergency Radiology Divisions at Massachusetts General Hospital and an associate professor of radiology at Harvard Medical School. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gupta. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Um, You have an unconventional career path. You have a PhD in computer science. You taught at USC and then spent some time working in research and development at GE. Could you describe your career path and what motivated you to decide to go to medical school? Yeah, that's a long story and uh, it's a good question. So when I started and when I was doing my PhD, medicine and doctoring was not in the cards or at least I didn't think it was. I was always interested in medicine even back in India when I was, uh, before I came to graduate school here, even though I didn't have any background in medicine, I would, there are friends of mine who were doing medical school at that time and I would go to the hospital with them, sit down, spend like, do overnight calls with them, just Mm -hmm. observing them. And then I came here and I started working in uh, chip technology, doing VLSI design, very large scale integration. These are the chips that are, that go into all computers, everything electronics. Mm -hmm. And then I started at USC doing the same kind of research, how to test such chips, how to make build systems using those, uh, those integrated circuits. And then I started working, I moved from USC to General Electric with their corporate R&D division in upstate New York. And that's where I started uh, diving a little bit deeper into medical technology because GE has a very large imaging uh, technology uh, uh, subsidiary, uh, GE Medical Systems, and I started doing projects with them. I started getting into computer vision. I did some projects with other parts of General Electric, but the thing that sort of solidified me and sort of prompted me to go into medicine is my work with medical systems. For GE Astro, I had built a system which will monitor the Earth from satellites, take pictures taken from satellites, and put them into a a 3D representation of the ground so that the pilots who are training uh, can train in geo-specific, realistic mm-hmm. terrain. Okay, and they had a very large flight simulation business in Daytona Beach. I went down there, I took my program and I rendered it and I got into this very large dome with a cockpit hanging in the middle and I could fly the, in my own terrain, That's which amazing. I had created from satellites. And then I came back to upstate New York and my manager saw this and he said, well, in medical systems, we have the same problem. I said, how so? He said, well, we have this x-ray machine that goes around a patient and take pictures of the patient from various angles and those have to be stitched together 
and and you have to make a 3D representation of that. So maybe I can use my program for doing calibration of this machine. So they sent me to France uh, in uh, outside of Paris, the, the headquarters for European uh, GE Europe is in uh, Versailles, near Versailles. Mm -hmm. And from there, they sent me to uh, this uh, smaller town called Nancy, which where they were building a machine which was doing exactly that, taking X-ray images using an imager. And uh, so I tried my program, and I, it worked, and, and it looked pretty good. And so when I came back from GE uh, France, I told my wife, I want to go to med school. <laughs> okay, so my wife said, oh, no, no, you're old, you got two kids, you got a mortgage <laughs> to pay, forget about it. So then I sat on it for, for one year, and I said, no, no, why don't I just take this MCAT exam? <laughs> so she said, okay, okay, he's just taking an exam, let's let, <laughs> let, let, let him take an exam. And so, so I took that exam, I did well, I applied, I, and uh, I interviewed at HMS at that time, oh. and then I landed up at Cornell in upstate New York, and I continued my work with GE along this time. I was doing sort of part-time work with GE because I had written a lot of software for them at mm. that time. And uh, one thing led to the other, and then here I am. Wow. <laughs> so that's sort of the <laughs> career path, somewhat unconventional, but <laughs> yeah. So now you're a clinical radiologist. That's correct. And you're also interested in research. Yeah. How does your clinical work inform the research you're doing? Very much so, because uh, I have, uh, because I was, I came into radiology uh, building systems, building uh, imaging equipment and CT scanners. Uh, much of the research that I do currently uh, is in that domain, and much of it is uh, very uh, closely aligned with what is needed in the clinic. So, for example, we have a system uh, very routinely I'll be working in the emergency room. We'll get patients who have had a hemorrhagic stroke, uh, which is uh, basically bleeding in the, in the brain. And we'll give them contrast to figure out where the bleeding is, where the aneurysm is, where the vessel, if there's a rupture of a vessel. Then uh, both things, the hemorrhage as well as the iodine or the contrast that we give, both are bright on the imaging that we, on the conventional imaging. So we de developed, for example, a method for distinguishing the two using uh, the spectrum of uh, iodine and blood because they, they are different. And so one can distinguish one from the other using something known as dual energy CT. And that is now routinely used in clinics. So much of the work that I do has foundation in engineering. So could we step back a second and talk in the context of the example you're giving us about the contrast? Mm -hmm. What is the basic imaging process? What do people do and then how do you... How do you read, take, and then read the image? Yeah. So basically what happens uh, in the context of the, the specific clinical problem I described, a patient would have what is known as the worst headache of their life. They, they will describe it as, my God, I'm, it's 10 out of 10. And uh, it started all of a sudden. They will be brought to the emergency room. In the emergency room, we do a... A, a computed tomography scan. So this is an X-ray based modality we, where we are doing the process that I just described. You have an X-ray source on one side, you have a detector on the other side, and the whole machine is spinning around the patient acquiring pictures from multiple angles. And the density of what the X-rays are going through 
is what is getting recorded in each one of these images. And then all this image set is then given to a computer, the computer that makes a slice by slice representation of that. So things that have a high density look the same. So blood, because of the blood clots and so on, will have high density and will look bright. Iodine also has a high atomic number, will look bright. But they, have, they are slightly different uh, under X-rays in terms of their spectral response. If we change the energy of the X-ray, they behave differently. And we use that property to distinguish the two. Um, you just talked about tomography. And one of your um, areas of research is about computed tomography and strokes. Mm -hmm. um, could you tell us how CT is used in treatment of strokes and what your research in this area is focused on? Yeah. So... Um, CT is actually integral to stroke. It is uh, uh, the standard of care. So when a patient comes in with an acute stroke, either hemorrhagic or ischemic, hemorrhagic means they have bleeding in their brain, ischemic means that a blood clot is blocking an artery in their brain and then blood is not going, getting past that blockage. In both cases, uh, you will do a CT scan, a computer tomography scan, to number one, distinguish which kind of stroke it is, whether it is a, a bleeding in the brain or is it uh, uh, oxygen not getting because the blood is not flowing. And once you uh, distinguish that, depending on how f uh, far away they are from the start of their symptoms, if they come within first four and a half hours, we will, and let's say it is a stroke where the blood clot has gone into the brain and is, is causing a blockage, we'll give them a blood thinner or a, a, an agent that will dissolve the clot. And uh, we'll also do an angiogram where we'll map out the vessels of the brain, again using CT scan to figure out where the blockage is. And now there has been essentially a revolution in stroke care. Mm -hmm. And uh, the revolution centers around the fact that we now have the ability to put a small catheter through the groin, snake it all the way up to the aorta and then into the brain and wow. then pluck out that clot. And it has been shown that for a large number of patients who are selected using imaging, we can actually stop the progression of the stroke. And so that has now become the standard of care. There was a recent study that was published in New England Journal of, Journal of Medicine called the DAWN study. And that says that for appropriately selected patients, even if the patient comes up to 24 hours, there's a benefit for doing this. Hmm. But the, the bottom line is you have to pick the right patients. You can hurt the patients by opening the blockage. Hmm. It is, it is uh, paradoxical that in some patients, if you remove the blockage, you let all this high pressure blood go into the part of the brain which is already infarcted and you can have uh, hemorrhage in that. So you can convert a stroke that was ischemic stroke into a hemorrhagic mm -hmm. stroke, which is you, or something you don't want to do. Right. So, however, the for appropriately selected patients, uh, in last six months to a year, this has been a change in the way we treat stroke. How do you know which patients to choose? Is there... Yeah, How, so, so, the so there is a lot of research around that, and different institutions have... A, so there are multiple studies that have been published, each showing benefit of doing this under certain selection criteria. So the selection criteria that we use at Mass General is based on how good the collateral supply to the brain that is being denied uh, oxygen is and how big is the infarct. 
So if the infarct is very big, if very large portion of the brain is, is already beyond repair, then there is no point in reestablishing blood supply into that. Also, people who have a good collateral supply, they have good detour paths for the blood to get to that area, they generally do much better than those where there is no collateral supply to the area that is blocked out. How do you see computed tomography leading into better treatment for these patients? Yeah, so that's a very good question. And um, essentially, we have to make computed tomography more available and to a very wide uh, cross-section of the society uh, because the triage for stroke and the patient selection is based on a computer tomography scan. Right now, the penetration of computer tomography in large hospital and big metropolitan areas like Boston is great, but as you go out in, let's say, rural New Hampshire or Maine and so on, uh, it is very sparse. So how, how do we make such a technology more available? One method of doing that would be uh, to have this technology available in ambulances, so make it more portable. And the current uh, uh, technology is based on a spinning gantry. It's a very large one-ton gantry that is rotating very fast, something, of, uh, some, some, uh, something like four or five times every second it is going around the patient. It's a large amount of mass, makes lots of noise. Uh, if you let the machine sort of run, rotate on the road, it will outrun most cars mm. uh, because it's a very large uh, radius. Uh, that is rotating. Uh, one of the uh, questions that my team is addressing is, can we get rid of some of the complexity in the machine, simplify it to the extent that it can be put into ambulances or in places where you normally would not have it? So put it in a Humvee and maybe military can take it all the way to the battlefront because it's also used for trauma. Mm. Uh, I've been uh, asked by, uh, by by NASA to research uh, whether we can make a gantry or a CT scanning capability available in space. Okay. Right now, a rotating gantry cannot be launched in space because as the gantry spins in one direction, the rocket will spin in the other direction because of Newton's third law. So a static uh, gantry or a non-rotating machine uh, has lots of applicability beyond stroke care for example, in trauma, in outer space, mm -hmm. in all resource-constrained uh, environments. And so to that end, uh, my team has built a module. That module has multiple X-ray sources and has a detector. And this module, when replicated multiple times and co connected in a ring, then becomes a CT scanner. So it's a completely static CT scanner which has distributed generation of x-ray. So right now we have one x-ray source that is shooting x-rays from multiple different angles into mm -hmm. the patient. Here we have many, many sources that are electronically switched on and off in order to simulate the same effect. We have built it essentially leveraging the, the recent boom in consumer electronics. So most of the things that we are actually using in this system are bought in Home Depot and, and Best oh, Buy. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, our electronics cost is much lower, and we are uh, we, b there's nothing rotating about the system, so we are using much less power. Mm -hmm. So we can run uh, without a very well-developed power grid and in environments where normally you would not feel a CT scanner. You're also using deep learning to improve diagnosis of strokes. 
what is deep learning and how do you use it in radiology? Another good question. Uh, so deep learning is a new concept that has become available, I would say, in less, maybe last five to eight years. And it is based on a very different way of teaching computers how to solve a problem. So the traditional method of solving a problem would be you, the human would step-by-step uh, step tell a computer this is the algorithm for solving this particular problem. So if you want to sort a set of numbers, you say this number is greater than this number and you continuously do it till the, the number of uh, numbers are sorted. In deep learning, you teach a computer how to solve a problem much like you'll teach a child how to solve a problem. Okay, so it is by examples. So for example, one of the algorithms that we have developed is given a CT scan, if the first question you want to ask is, is there hemorrhage on the scan? Is there bleeding in the scan or not? Because that's sort of the dividing line between hemorrhagic stroke and ischemic stroke. So uh, some of the students in my, my lab, they have developed a neural network, a deep mm -hmm. learning system, where we have given the system thousands of examples of CT scans and just tell the system, this, this scan has a hemorrhage on it, this one doesn't, this one has, this one doesn't. And with about 10,000 such examples, we get a very high accuracy. Now the system learns, and given a new case, it'll be a, it's able to say, this has hemorrhage or this doesn't. Mm -hmm. And we're, we're doing the same thing with stroke, and uh, with stroke we are also trying to teach the computer can it outline the boundary of the stroke? Because the mm. volume of the stroke is important in triaging whether this patient should go for catheter intervention or not. And all this is based on this new concept called deep neural networks, which is, uh, uh, which is the basis for many of the things that we now are essentially taking for granted. I don't know if you've noticed, uh, Google Translate suddenly has gotten very good. Mm -hmm. So I have all the Japanese collaborators. Many times they are sending emails to each other and nobody bothers to translate it for me, but <laughs> I'm on the email chain. Mm -hmm. So every time I get an email like this, I'll just cut and paste into a Google Translate window and I'm able to follow the conversation. Mm. And the basis for that is that the program was not taught the grammar of Japanese or the grammar of English because there are so many books that have already been translated just by examples the system learned how to translate Japanese to English and English to Japanese. And, and this That's is across the board, so you can, you can do it just about with any language. Another area you're looking at is traumatic brain injuries and light therapy. Um, could you tell us about the clinical trial you're doing? Sure. So um, traumatic brain injury is a very common disease, uh, in the, especially in young people. And uh, you also get a lot of it in... Uh, many sports-related injuries, such as uh, football and so on. And there's been a lot of press about it. Unfortunately, to date, there's no good therapy for it. So if somebody comes uh, with a traumatic brain injury, we can diagnose it, but we cannot, uh, we don't have a therapy, therapy mm -hmm. for it. There have been some drugs that have been shown to some marginal efficacy, but there is nothing like aspirin or, or for what we have to, uh, uh, for other diseases, mm -hmm. you know. So. Uh, some of the researchers at MGH, especially in Wellman Center, mm -hmm. uh, they have shown that light at a very specific wavelength interacts with the mitochondria within the cells, 
cells of any cell in the body mm-hmm. and will upregulate atp production will upregulate uh, uh, things uh, that help with the swelling of the uh, of the brain or any other tissue and in mice they have shown that mice that receive light therapy at that specific wavelength do much better after they have had a traumatic brain injury than the mice that they don't and the results are almost visible in the sense that you can visually see that the mice that have been treated multiple times with light therapy are doing much mm-hmm. better so we are funded by the department of defense to answer this question would light be helpful in human beings can it be used for human traumatic brain injury and to that end wellman center uh, has built a helmet that uh, has lots of leds inside it mm-hmm. leds are uh, putting out light in near infrared is mostly not visible to light uh, is it's like a deeper red if you will mm-hmm. and uh, uh, we are doing a randomized uh, blinded control trial uh, for patients who have had moderate tbi so we are enrolling patients currently within uh, our emergency room mm-hmm. uh, people who sign up and give consent uh, we put the helmet on half the in half the people will tur- turn the helmet on in the other half we don't patient is generally not able to tell not mm-hmm. generally patient is not able to tell whether the light was on or not because the fans are going the helmet is always making a noise mm-hmm. once it is turned on and i'm also blinded to this so i do not know whether oh. they are getting light therapy or not only mm-hmm. one person uh, who is the study coordinator she knows who's getting light and it is based on like a coin flip essentially mm. and so far we have done close to 40 patients we are very close to 40 and uh, the blind is still not broken and uh, we are doing uh, this study so after they get the light therapy we do an mri scan on them we we measure the parameters of the brain very very carefully and then they get another uh, mri 3 weeks down 2 to 3 weeks down and another mri 3 months down we also keep a detailed log of their symptoms uh, what is happening to them all adverse events if there are any and this is all being tabulated mm. with the with the blind in place and at the end of uh, the study when the blind is broken we'll ask the question the people who got the light therapy did they behave any differently than those who don't so i'm uh, we are yeah. pretty close to we are in the last few months of this study mm. so in next 6 months we'll be breaking the blind and we'll know the answer if if the light works or not so you talked about the the study with the mice that kind of prompted you to be able to use it in humans um but how has light therapy been applied in treating similar conditions or other conditions so so light i mean i believe light is good for you in general okay <laughs> if you don't get light you get depressed yeah, exactly. anywhere uh it's completely dark there is no life mm-hmm. deep sea and mm-hmm. where even though there are places where this is so dark there are some animals who live there but they make their own light so light is so fundamental to life in 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 general uh we think that only the sense in uh, the cells in our eyes sense light but that's not true because skin also senses light and the truth is in general all body cells have receptors and have methods by which are influenced by light okay and near infrared light is in a spectrum where a small percentage of it 
goes through the skull. So with, the, with our helmet, about 3% of the light will reach the surface of the brain. And because it's in the near-infrared spectrum, whatever reaches goes much deeper into the brain. This is not focused light. This is not light like you will get from a flashlight. Mm -hmm. It is diffuse light. Photons are making their way and scattering as they are going along. And these are the ones that are influencing the brain cells to behave the way they are, they are, they are behaving. Mm -hmm. So light is used for... Um, multiple other things for example there is a there was actually several companies now that are selling these caps that have leds within them at a different wavelength mm -hmm. uh, again some uh, wavelength of red spectrum infrared spectrum and they have been shown to grow hair oh. so there are uh, so if you when next time you travel just flip through the pages of the magazine that uh, it gives you capillus is one of those companies there are mm. other companies that do that and it is FDA approved. So FDA, if somebody has in a controlled trial shown that light helps with growing hair. Mm -hmm. So light has been shown for, uh, has, uh, has been tested for stroke. Nobody has done a double blind study for mm -hmm. it. Light has been uh, tested for multiple other conditions. But the conditions where it has been tested in a sort of a controlled environment, like what we're mm -hmm. doing for TBI, those studies are still few and far between. Are there any questions you would still like to answer in the future or what future projects you have in mind? So I'm, I'm really looking forward to the breaking of the blind mm -hmm. and light therapy <laughs> study. That's, that's one thing which is sort of going to happen. We are in the process of, uh, of starting a new project where we will build a human-sized static CT scanner. And uh, we are in the process of uh, talking to the DOD, writing the the uh, proposal for, for it, but that's something that is uh, dear to my heart because the same technology built in a modular way um, can be fielded in multiple mm -hmm. environments, resource-constrained environments. And the basic question uh, there, which is sort of the fundamental question, uh, current CT scanners use a very high power, one large X-ray source that is rotated. And the question uh, to be answered there is, can we do the job of one strong X-ray source by many weaker X-ray sources? Just like uh, earlier we used to have one light bulb in a room, and now we can put LED lights, which each one of them are small, but we can have many of them. I want to bring the same sort of concept to X-ray imaging. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Gupta. It's been a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thank you. Next time on Think Research. So I became interested in the issue of what's going on with this problem because it's pretty well studied in Africa where there's a huge uh, pandemic, as most everyone knows. India doesn't have a, a pandemic in the same way, but they still have a third largest HIV population in the world. So I became interested in, in, in thinking, like, why is loss to follow up so high in India as well? And they have a situation where only half the people diagnosed with HIV are on ART and are, are effectively treated. So I thought, well, how can we get at this at this issue. Dr. Brian Chan talks about the factors that keep people with HIV in southern India from staying in treatment. Harvard Catalyst Think Research is supported by NCATS, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. Subscribe to Think Research on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find out more about our podcast or suggest topics for future episodes, visit our website, www.catalyst.harvard.com. 
thinkresearch.edu/slash thinkresearch.